Hello and welcome. I am Piers Ridyard, CEO of RDX Works, a core developer of the decentralized finance protocol Radix, a public ledger entirely focused on bringing DeFi into the mainstream. This is our podcast, The DeFi Download, a show about decentralized finance and all things crypto, where we dive into the details of the projects, assets and services that are powering the DeFi revolution. Today, I have Oliver Lynch, CEO of Bittrex Global. Bittrex Global is a non-US cryptocurrency exchange based out of Liechtenstein and Bermuda that is currently being sued by the SEC. Bittrex was first founded in 2014, with Bittrex Global being founded in 2019, and together they have now weathered four bear markets and offer more than 650 tokens. Oliver, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me, Piers. Real pleasure to be here. So as we were saying just before we got started, your uh, your background is, is, is slightly unusual um, as CEO of a, uh, of a cryptocurrency exchange. Your background is that of a lawyer. Yeah, that's right. I spent uh, over a decade as a lawyer, traditional financial regulatory lawyer practicing in England. Uh, I also spent a bit of time out in the States um, and quite a bit of time actually out in the Middle East um, working on some, some exciting fintech stuff. Uh, out of there. So as far as I know, uh, I'm the only CEO of a crypto exchange that is a lawyer by background, which I think you know, says quite a lot about Bitrix Global and our values and the importance we place on doing things the right way, the legal way, the regulated way. Um, but yeah, a, a not particularly well-trodden path um, yes. and hopefully one will see more of in future. Yeah. So to talk a little bit about how you got, how you became CEO of, of Bitrix Global, because I think that's an interesting story, right? Uh, it, well, interesting to me and hopefully to some others. I think, um, you know, my journey to crypto was um, one that I think we're seeing more and more, which is you take traditional finance. Um, and as I say, I was doing regulatory law, advising banks and broker dealers. But my, my specialism was in um, financial market infrastructure, traditional exchanges, clearing houses, uh, CSDs, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then in the last, I don't know, five years or so, uh, when I started working out on these mega projects in the Middle East, um, I started developing an interest in and started advising more and more on the fintech side of things. And so, you know, you take traditional exchanges and fintech and mash them together and you sort of get crypto. Um, and so uh, in, in 2021, um, I joined Bitrix Global um, actually as general counsel. I joined as the lawyer um, heading up the legal team there or here. Um, and then 2022, my predecessor, a CEO, stepped down, uh, and I, I got the bump up in the wrong place at the wrong time. So um, was I uh, got the bump up to, to the CEO's chair, and, and now I, I, I carry out both roles. So, so I'm, I'm try to keep my hand in some of the legal stuff. We've got a head of legal who does the day-to-day, but the legal strategy side of things um, and the regulation side of things and you know where we position ourselves and, and how we do it, is now so important to a crypto exchange that actually combining those roles at that level um, is really valuable. Right. Okay. So let, 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 let's sort of like try and get inside your, 
inside your shoes a little bit because because you're you you've you've stepped up as ceo the sec gary gensler is now coming after uh, after the exchange um obviously your exchange bitrex global doesn't uh service u.s citizens so like how are you how are you thinking about building your business at the same time as sort of being under attack and how are you thinking about the u.s regulator when you are sort of acting globally it's a really good question. And I, I always used to say one of the great joys of being CEO of Bitrix Global is that because we don't have any U.S. customers, we don't offer our services <laughs> in the U.S., I didn't have to worry about the SEC. Uh, that was a, a stock line of mine that I managed to trot out. And it turns out, um, it turns out other people had other, other ideas. Um, and look, we continue to believe that that is the case and that we, we, we know we don't have any U.S. customers. We know we don't... Um, offer our services into the U.S. at all, um, there's a discussion to be had, it seems. Now, we wish we could have had that discussion with the SEC um, you know, before they took action, but unfortunately, we weren't given the opportunity to do that. So the question is, well, how do we go about running our business? We just do. Like, the SEC stuff is happening in the background, and um, you know, we're, we're marshalling our defenses and preparing ourselves to you know, robustly and vigorously defend ourselves in court. But in the meantime, we have lots of loyal users that we want to provide the best possible service for. And we have two regulators. We're regulated in Liechtenstein and in Bermuda, scrutinizing our every move and, and keeping making sure that we're doing all the things that we're supposed to do under their regulatory regimes. And what's good about their regulatory regimes is they are bespoke fit for purpose and designed specifically for crypto. So, and what we've seen across the board actually is the most successful regulatory regimes are, and, and by successful, I mean the ones that ultimately are not just best for the, for, the, for the participants, but best at protecting customers. The most successful regimes by that measure are the ones that actually analyze crypto, look at what it is, say, right, here are the risks in crypto, this, this new uh, this new sector, this new subcategory, this new thing, how do you identify them? How do you manage them? How do you do this thing safely? And the reason that's more successful is because the other approach is to try and analyze crypto through the prism of traditional finance. And so you get this discussion. It's like, well, is it a bit like a security or a bit like a commodity or a derivative? The answer is sort of, no, it's none of those things. It's crypto. It's its own thing. And you're never going to fit this square peg into a round hole, especially when that round hole was, was created, you know, getting on for 100 years ago. Um, and, and it, you know, ultimately, if the job of regulation is to ensure fair markets and to protect customers, then by far the best way to do that is to ensure fair markets and protect customers and actually really get to grips with what the risks are, what the challenges are, and how to do it safely. And that's what we've seen. There are early leaders in, in Bermuda and Liechtenstein, but we're seeing other jurisdictions now alive to that fact. And we're seeing a whole load of initiatives around the world from countries saying, okay, there's something really interesting here about crypto. There's something really interesting about blockchain technology. We want a piece of that action, but we also want to make sure we're doing it safely, securely, and in a responsible and grown-up manner. And so you see... So so, so let let me ask it. Let me ask a question. Sort of back on the on the on on the lawsuit is like if you if you are if you are 
providing services to non us citizens from a regulated jurisdiction how come the sec is suing well look pierce that's a really good question um and as you'll appreciate with with active litigation going on we can't get too much into the the weeds and the details of exactly you know what what the what the various claims are here but what's really important for us is ordinarily the way these things work and i i'm not a u.s lawyer um, but, mm. you know, I've, I've spoken, at least in the past, past couple of months, I've spoken to my, more than my fair share of them. And ordinarily, the way these things work is, you know, there's a discussion with the SEC. They will ask questions, they get information, there'll be an exchange of ideas. Um, and after a period of time, once they've gathered enough of their, of their information, um, if they think that there's a problem, they'll issue what's called a Wells Notice. And that is a preliminary determination that, that there is a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, you would then, after the world's notice, you have a period of time to respond, and you might do that formally. Um, and then the world's notice and the response go to the commission, and they vote whether to take an action. None of that happened in our case. The very mm-hmm. first contact that we had of any kind at Patriots Global with the SEC was the delivery of a world's notice. That was the mm-hmm. very first time we heard from them. They have never sought one piece of documentation documentary evidence, one interview, one discussion with anyone at Pitchers Global. They went straight mm. in the world's notice and we said, okay, fine. Um, you're not, as I understand it, they're not required to, to, to have discussions beforehand. So here's the world's notice. Mm. Can we have a reasonable amount of time to respond to it? Because this is obviously brand new to us. Uh, and they basically said, nope, don't bother. We're just going to go ahead and see you. Right. And, and, and so, you know, all of those processes and discussions exist, not just to give lawyers a job, although, you know, as someone that, that used to be practicing law, I was always very grateful when there's an expensive process that I can bill my clients for. Um, but it, what it really exists for is to make sure that mistakes aren't made, that the position is properly understood, and to ensure, you know, fair outcomes. Um, so we haven't had an opportunity to do any of that. Uh, we, we're now thrust into litigation and we have, we have those explanations. We have those discussions. We, um, you know, want to make those points. Um, and I, I think it, it is unfortunate that we have to make them in front of a judge. Um, but if that's where we have to do it, then that's where we have to do it. Right. Right. So the, your, your, the, the fact that you guys, I mean, I, I think that a lot of the industry is going to be watching your case just because the fact you guys are, explicitly not serving us clients yet still the the sec has come after you i think is is going to send some shockwaves or has already sent some shockwaves um into the industry um i think it has because not only do you have the the you know uh, the general oh it's it's legislation by enforcement and that's really bad to mention which which is true of, of a lot of these actions that the sec is taking recently but you've also got the, well, hang on, but these guys, these guys aren't in the US. Um, mm-hmm. So it's just that, that added, like, if you're already minded to think that the SEC is engaged in overreaching um, mm-hmm. and, and kind of on some kind of mission, then I mm-hmm. think there are a lot of people that think this is further evidence of that. Mm. And so do you, do you see, like, how do you think about regulation as a regulatory lawyer? How do you think of regulation from the point of view of its, like, 
um, from a jurisprudence point of view? Like, is 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 regulation is regulation over? Uh, is it an overwhelming good, or is it a partial good? So, like, what? So I go back to you know I go back to law school day one of week one of law school, and they say, well, what's the point of law? Right, and the right. point of law in in a modern society is to facilitate interactions between people. Right? And, and that's at its fundamental level what it's all about. If I want to go and buy an apple from an apple cart, I need a legal framework to do that because I need to know that I can go and buy an apple and it will be an apple and not a pear and that it won't be poisoned because there's going to be some kind of rules about um, food safety standards. Um, and if I don't get my apple, I've got some kind of recourse and I can force someone to give me an apple or give me my money back. Right. At a really basic level, just going up to an apple cart and buying an apple only works if there's a legal framework underpinning it. And those same principles underpin that microtransaction, as we might call it, all the way up to you know, multi-billion dollar M&A deals and all the rest of it. Without that framework, without that legal structure, people cannot, with confidence, interact with each other. So you I, actually, I actually disagree with part of that, which okay. is that you're, you're under, no, un, under normal circumstances, if I go up to an apple cart and buy an apple, there is no requirement for a legal framework. It's if something goes wrong with that transaction, you then start to require the legal framework because most people like, like, like it, if we went back to a state of nature, I could still agree that I could, you know, I give you this fish for that apple and I don't need a legal framework to ensure that that transaction is finished. It's if there's ever a dispute about that transaction or if there's ever a problem, I get sick, he gets sick, that, that it feels like the, like, feels like law is there to help make sure. Make right. it, 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 exactly. And knowing that that is there and underpinning it is what gives you the confidence to go into that transaction knowing what you're getting yourself into. That doesn't mean that, that everything goes wrong. Of course not, everything goes wrong. Most of the time, when you go and buy an apple from an apple cart, that's a straightforward transaction, and, and the law has nothing to say about it. But the only way you can do it in a civilized society, and you talk about a state of nature, right? There's a reason that Hobbes said the state of nature is ultimately nasty, brutish, and short. is because mm. without the confidence of well, what happens if this goes wrong? Am I going to require to get into some kind of fisticuffs to get my apple? Mm. Without that level of confidence to say, no, actually, here's what happens if it goes wrong. Here's your legal recourse. Here's, here's how you can remedy the situation. Then, then yeah, it becomes um, a, a question of force or might or, you know, overpowering someone else. The law allows you to interact with people in a civilized manner, knowing that, if something goes wrong, and this is why lawyers are also cynical, right? We just sit around basically trying to work out all the various exciting ways things can go horribly wrong, um, and, and, and prepare for them. But that, that's what, that's what gives you the confidence to do the thing in the first place. And that's true. I, if, I always, if, I always describe, I always describe, describe contracts as prenups. Well, like you, I, don't, <laughs> you don't, you don't, you don't, you don't expect the way you don't expect the marriage to go wrong, but if it does, then you want to describe all the ways in which you fairly allocate Right. In the point in which you're friends, rather than at the point in which you're no longer friends, how the breakup might go. Exactly. And it's why lawyers, you know, when you're talking about big M&A deals, which are 
basically a marriage of their own kind. And all the commercial guys are really excited about getting it done and popping champagne corks. And there's lawyers in the background saying, uh, you know, what, what happens if, uh, if you turn out to absolutely hate each other? And we, and we get cast as the cynics in the background trying to be the party poopers. Um, and to an extent, we are. Um, but actually, you're damn grateful for us when something does go wrong. Right? And, and so to bring it back to the regulation, do you need to be regulated to an operating exchange in principle? No, of course not. Like there could be hundreds of thousands of transactions, millions of transactions that take place without any kind of problem. But that one transaction goes wrong and you lose money and you realize that actually it's because there wasn't a proper control. There wasn't a proper system. Um, some money got funded uh, into I know, a terrorist cell and now all of a sudden you're responsible for atrocities or human trafficking or uh, you know whatever it is. It only takes one thing to go wrong, and then the, the call goes up quite rightly. Well, where the hell was the oversight? Where the hell was the supervision? Where the hell was the enforcement? So I think, yeah, it, it's only relevant when stuff goes wrong. But unfortunately, in this complex, multifaceted, rich world that we live in, stuff goes wrong all the time. And if I'm going to have confidence in a financial system or financial product, just as I wouldn't put my money in an unregulated bank, I'm not going to put my money on an unregulated exchange. Yeah, so let me let me take a counter position on this, right? Which is that that's why DeFi exists. That's what smart contracts are for. That's why we called we created these public ledgers in the first place, right? We created the ability to be able to program these systems where you could trust minimize and you don't need to have process and control in the same way that you do in a centralized exchange where you have lack of transparency in the case of FTX, in the case of Celsius, potentially in the case of Binance, you know, this has just come out this week. So like, you know, the, I often, I often look at centralized exchanges as, as, as this, this point in which the technology potential was there but we were not able to migrate to them because of the complexity of use like it's really difficult to use metamask it's really it's expensive to use ethereum like all of these kind of things are in the way and so people go to centralized exchanges because they are the convenient easy to use front end and they sacrifice this lack of the lack of controls in the back end that is enforced by a public ledger in the first place so like how do you view decentralized finance decentralized exchanges do you view them as a threat to your business i i, I don't and you know i i, I think there's a, there's a narrative of centralized versus decentralized i actually think that the the entire crypto community is best when they work together right and 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 productively take the, the advantages and disadvantages of each but i think it is fair to say that that decentralized finance in general has some problems that it's not yet addressed, right? Yes, it purports to eliminate um, the, the risk of, well, a control going wrong because it's all on smart contracts. But the fact is that a vast, vast majority of people, and I certainly include myself in this category, actually verifying the protocols underpinning DeFi is close to impossible. Yes, with enough time and effort and knowledge, you could do it, but that's not, a real viable option for the vast, vast majority of people. So you say you're trusting the code, and we hear that over again, or don't trust, verify. But that's not realistic, and, and we live in the real world. Um, the fact is you're not trusting the code. You're trusting the people that wrote the code. You're just moving mm -hmm. it one step along, 
and sure. you have no control over those people. And if the lesson you learned from the FTX debacle and, and all the other scandals of last year is that you want to move to a system that has less oversight, has less supervision, then unfortunately, I think you've, you've learned the wrong lesson. Interesting. So, like, how's that different from regulation? Because, as a regulator, uh, from a regulatory point of view, if I'm putting in process in place, I'm I'm putting in process according to what the local laws of Bermuda is. But I'm a UK resident. I'm dealing with your exchange. I have no idea what those laws are. Your regulator saying that this is okay according to the process. But how am I not just trusting someone one step removed from me in exactly the same way as I am with a coder? What well, you are, and that's what's really interesting about the way regulation has grown up around the world, because what you very quickly move towards is a system where. Um, the better of the most appropriate regulatory regimes are known and it becomes a, a badge that's worth having. Right. And what I think we saw, what we've seen up until now is those participants that even believed or even purported to believe in regulation. Right. And we were very often fighting against the China very often you know, back in 2014, when the exchange was first created, we were pretty much the only people advocating for regulatory oversight right the founders got literal death threats from people for pushing for regulation saying you know how dare you how dare you this is anathema to everything we stand for you know when we i remember i remember it happening i remember when uh, when 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 bitrex started to ask for kyc aml information yeah and and you know harrowing stuff you know but when we take over you'll be first right so we we kind of won that argument and then the the naysayers moved on and basically created the system that we call regulatory arbitrage, which is, okay, you find a jurisdiction that isn't really worth very much and say, get a, get a, a trophy from them, say, oh, yes, we're regulated here, and stick that in the trophy cabinet and never look at it again. Um, actually, what we're seeing now is uh, perhaps too late, but we're seeing a recognition that that is not what people want, and people are demanding... It's most especially at the institutional level. But of course, it's more difficult for, for individuals. But for the institutions, they're now really beginning to say, okay, you say you're regulated, but, but are you really? How are you regulated? Where are you regulated? What does that look like? And how ultimately does that protect markets and protect me? And so you're seeing far from this race to the bottom that we were seeing with the regulatory arbitrage perspective, you're actually seeing a flight to quality. And you're seeing institutions around the world say, ah, Bermuda, yeah, we know them. We know that regulatory regime. We know the Digital Assets and Business Act. We know the standards imposed and we approve. And we know the regulator. We know the BMA because they've got this exceptional track record, um, in their case, in, in, in insurance, in the case of Liechtenstein in private wealth and banking. So we know that they're doing a, a good job in actually supervising and overseeing. So mm-hmm. when Bitrix Global say, we're regulated by the BMA, that's a badge of honor, not just a trophy to be put in a back cupboard somewhere and ignored. Right. So yes, you are you are trusting someone. Yeah, but you are FTX trusting- regulated in the US, right? Like FTX, like it doesn't stop internal like you can have no. these processes, you can have the regulation, but it doesn't start internal fraud. And this is, this is, this I think this is where the this is why people have drawn that lesson. It's like, yes, 
at, from an everyday point of view, everyday person can't go and verify code, but everyday person doesn't understand the laws of Bermuda, doesn't know that that's a good jurisdiction versus, you know, sort of Malta or Gibraltar or somewhere else. Like, doesn't know well, the I'm, difference. I'm not quite sure that's true. I, I think I think when it comes to traditional finance, people do have a good understanding. I think when it comes to traditional finance, you take a certain amount of confidence knowing that your bank is regulated in the UK or that your bank is regulated in Japan. I think people do have an understanding that if your bank is regulated in a jurisdiction that you barely even heard of, they, yeah. you're, you're less likely to have confidence in it. Um, for and, sure. I mean, like if it's regulated in your home jurisdiction, I think that for most people, they'll be like, oh, okay. It's regulated in the I don't, UK. I don't think that's right. I think most people would, would be able to say, um, I am more likely to trust a bank that's regulated in Japan than one that is regulated in Zimbabwe. But I don't think that's an implausible thing for people to say. Sure. No, that's true. But like, if you ask the average UK person, would they trust a, more likely trust a bank in the UK, regulated in the UK, a bank regulated in Japan? I don't know what the answer would be. The interesting, it would be an interesting survey to go for. It, it would but be. I, I, think, I, think, I think, I think my, my, my point, my point is, is, is this, like, I think the whole industry is going towards this idea of there being verify, verifying entities, right? So like for smart contracts, it's very usual to get an audit mm -hmm. and there are auditors for whom there is a good reputation in the market for being audited. Right. And there are, and then there are frameworks or smart contract designs that you can go down that make it less likely that it's going but, to get peers, but peers we're audited too, right? Centralized exchanges, sure. not yeah. only have that audit that DeFi has, but also yeah. have the regulatory oversight. So we, we do both. Well, centralized exchanges don't use smart contracts. So it wouldn't be the same type of audit. But my, my point is that there, it's all part of the same thing. Like a decentralized exchange or a centralized exchange, we're both going towards more validation. Like we need, yeah, we're not just saying, here's the code, trust it. We're saying, here's the code. I went and spoke with these guys over here. These guys over here have a third party reputation specifically for auditing and, and with regulated, with regulated exchanges, you're going, we aren't going to a paper thin jurisdiction. We're going to a well-regulated jurisdiction with proper regulatory oversight. And we are also getting, you know, sort of audited and, and making sure we have internal proper controls and we're getting ISO 27001 or whatever it is that you're doing, SOC 2, like those debt various controls the thing that, that that's sort of been interesting about this whole um narrative is that we we sort of in some ways i feel like we've gone a little bit full circle as in like the whole of crypto was created to be to to disintermediate and to make and, and to lower the cost of financial products and now we've got to this point where i think actually launching and running an exchange a crypto exchange is probably more expensive in terms of law, legal time, in terms of sort of like um, making sure that you're and, and litigation, then running a fully regulated securities exchanges. Like I think that a lot of the, the, the exchanges today will have spent more than, for example, Robinhood did in creating the Robinhood securities exchange. But I think the answer is we need an all of the above approach right which is why i started off by saying this i think the industry is at its best when centralized and decentralized products work together and teams work together and create something you know more more productive than destructive i think there is always going to be a case for decentralized products and sort of 
true believers of the decentralized world. I think there is always going to be a place for centralization and people that want to, especially on the, the retail side, um, want to get involved in crypto on the institutional side, want open markets that, that operate in the same way as traditional markets, you know, especially they've got decades of trading strategies that they now want to apply to crypto. It's going to be significantly easier for them to win those across on a recognizable market um, that, that operates on the same kind of basis they've been used to. I think similarly, if you're looking at, I don't know, pension funds, it's going to be very difficult for them to, uh, under their rules and under their, their mandates, get involved in some of the, 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 the more out there DeFi projects. So if they want exposure to crypto, there's always going to be a need for some kind of recognizable comparator that shows a like for like with, with what they're used to investing in. So again, I just don't think that there's any need for one side to squeeze out the other. In fact, we're all on the same side. All we're trying to do is demonstrate the power of DLT, uh, the, the potential for um, you know, really, I, everyone uses the phrase, but democratization, but democratizing finance, bringing those advantages to people that don't otherwise have those advantages. Some elements of that will be centralized, some elements will be decentralized, and some will be a mix of the two. And I think that's overall a very good thing. Yeah, it, it's, uh, I think it's going to be. It's going to be really interesting next 10 years, I think, is, is, is sort of me, the time frame that I think this stuff really sort of thrashes out. Uh, thrashes out and I, I think that we're definitely going to be in for in interesting times <laughs> in the interim. Um, so what, what's next for, for Bittrex Global? What, like, assuming this stuff is behind us, what, what, what have you got on the horizon? Well, it's a really interesting and exciting time for crypto as a whole. Um, Bitrix Global is going to stick true to its principles. We were established on, on three main principles. Regulation, which we talked about, security and innovation. Security, I think, is, you know, is one of those things that is, is underrated until it goes wrong. Um, and look at you know, the backgrounds of our founders are security engineers. That's what, they, that's what they're good at. In fact, why they created the exchange. They, they looked around what was out there, realized that it all kind of sucked, and said, well, we can either lose our money on, on what's already out there or create our own. So security is really at the core of what we do. But innovation is, is the really interesting one because innovation in crypto almost becomes a dirty word when it becomes a byword for um, some of the shiny, headline-grabby, empty promises that we've seen in the industry. I, I think you talk about a 10-year horizon. We only get there if innovation means actually engaging with our customers on what they want and, and showing new ways in which we can make use of DLT, make use of cryptocurrencies. This, you know, 100,000x overnight to the moon kind of, that's not innovation. That's, that's kind of nonsense. So the thing I'm particularly interested in at the moment and I think has real value is the tokenization of real-world assets. Um, mm -hmm. And this, this, to me... Uh, from a purely kind of geeky, loyally perspective, if we can find a real way to tokenize everything from funds, insurance contracts, real estate, um, you know, I, I think there's something really interesting there and really valuable. Um, it's a matter of making sure you do it in a way that, that works, uh, in a way that provides for that, 
stability, that regulatory certainty that we've been talking about um, that allows people to know what it is they're getting into and how it's going to, how it is going to work if and when things go wrong, which is bringing it back to what we were talking about earlier is where the rubber hits the road on the legal side of things. So that's something I'm, I'm personally particularly interested in. Um, but in the yeah. meantime, you know, we've got an exchange to run and we've got lots of loyal users using us to, to basically fill the gap that has been left by some of the more outlandish, outrageous, um, and unfortunately unlawful uh, activities that were going on out there. And I think what we're seeing is a clearing out of the industry um, and, and a real kind of stratification into those exchanges, those participants that are doing things the right way, like Pitchers Global, uh, and those that are falling very quickly by the wayside and being called out, not just by enforcement agencies, I should point out, being, point, being pointed out and being drowned out uh, by those of us in the industry that are trying to do the right thing. So we're in the middle of a real growing up uh, of the industry, I think, and, and Bitchers Global is, is excited to play its part in that. Oliver, I think we'll leave it there. It's been such a wonderful uh, conversation. Thank you so much for uh, coming on the show. Uh, and yeah, I look forward to speaking again in six months uh, time or so and seeing how you guys are getting on thanks so much for having me on the podcast it's a, a real pleasure and uh, yeah it's a date I'll hold you to it I'm going radical, I'm going radish, I'm going radical, I'm going radish. 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 I'm going radish